Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Boom, history was made. The feds funded a $175 billion Marshall Plan to, air quotes, rescue the systems, but wait, nearly all had record profits for two of the past years. How is this so? Well, the CMS stated over the last two and a half years it would not audit COVID admissions. This from March 20 to August 22, two-year period. Fluid missions, a foundation of hospital profits, dropped magically to almost zero for these past two flu seasons. And surely other admissions were fudged a little bit too. Hashtag upcoding, hashtag fraud alert. But it's not like different from the IRS saying zero audits this year, America, guaranteed. And I thank Sean Strash, a recent guest and my friend, for that perfect synopsis and analogy. So $175 billion that makes the CARES Act document more valuable than the Gutenberg Bible and the Rosetta Stone and the Magna Carta combined. And hey, let's throw in all the Da Vinci's and all the Michelangelo's and all the Vermeer's and all the Van Gogh's and all the Warhol's. Yep, we're still not there at $175 billion, not even close to the CARES Act. In fact, the CARES Act is valued at almost $5 million for every letter printed in that law, a rare, beautifully mastercrafted piece of work based on a giant lie. So the bigs doubled their reserves and they used these no strings attached taxpayer dollars to go on an unprecedented buying spree of independent primary care and specialists. And we've been talking about it on the show, but we now have the numbers. And never, ever, ever in two years history has a 10% of all doctors and more accurately about a third of the independents left been corporatized like they are in a mosquito zapper. Hoo-ah to the American Hospital Association and Federation of American Hospitals. You are unquestionably the finest lobbies on earth, but you lied to us and you lied to Congress. And except for the always desperate rural hospitals, the bigs never needed our tax dollars. HCA nobly and notably returned $6 billion. Uh, for your information, they are the alpha in the for-profit hospital world. And a smaller system, UHS, gave back $880 million, both returning their CARE Act money of 2021. See, there's good guys out there still. And the white coat shopping spree had a deeply Southern accent and saw a doubling of corporate ownership down here, y'all. I'm in Texas. I'm in the South. So it's been an unprecedented Pac-Man goblin, a real turkey shoot, yes, sir, Bob, or Roberta, or whatever. But physician employment jumped into the bigs from 2019 to 2021, totals 108,700 physicians. Can we assume the snowball accumulated 50,000 more in 2022, not represented in that number? And that number, 108,000, 10% of every doctor out there, financed 100% by your and my US tax dollars. Is that all right by you? It ain't right by me. 
So I love this quote, and I've said it a thousand times. Dr. Keith Smith, who's a great Southerner and a great taxpayer and an American free market surgery giant, said, don't expect the driver of the getaway car to solve the caper. Well, two-thirds employed of that 74% who are now corporate-owned get a paycheck from a big hospital or a big system, and the other one-third of that 74% are now employed by publicly listed retail and private equity roll-ups, something today's guest knows a lot about. Will big systems be able to hold on to these docs? Two words, no freaking way. Isn't it obvious with 50% burnout of PCPs, the backbone of healthcare, or 50% of the nurses of every stripe drop out of nursing within five years, the backbone of hospitals, the bigs own those two lousy doc and nurse satisfaction scores, and half are defeated. Those are the half not listening to this show, we believe. And no one talks about the lies we tell single moms. Riddle me this, Batman. So why are all the medical assistants all so young? They too must be burning out, but nobody's measuring the MAs. They escape dead-end retail jobs for dead-end healthcare jobs with better pay and better benefits that they simply can't afford. But overwhelmingly, the medical assistant work is janitorial, secretarial, and reimbursement-centric and not actual patient care. Why we call them medical assistants beats me. So if their calling was to join medicine to help people get better and to have patient care hands-on, we've lied to these single moms. Shame on us. The great healthcare resignation is only accelerated by a pandemic, which clearly focused the lens on this. Most bigs don't give a rat's behind about our frontline heroes. Lip service, yes, lots of sign, lots of PR, but nah, you're a cog. Caregivers learn quickly the gag rule too. You speak up in a big system and you are outie. You're not fired, we will ruin your freaking career. Talk about PPE, okay. Talk about alt therapy that works just fine, all right. You talk about all the staff shortages and ridiculous nursing ratios? Kiss that white coat and that stethoscope. Bye-bye, sucker. The listener who is surprised right now doesn't work at a big. Without free speech, aren't we all robots? Aren't we all animals? No right could be more fundamental than speaking your piece. Just don't speak it here and put nothing in writing, Jack, Jill, nada. And robbing hospitals' backbone of free speech feels kind of like China or Russia, doesn't it? Is any other profession gagged like their move to North Korea the day you enter that profession? Maybe it's a little overstated here, but it does have that flavor of that giant muzzled prison camp without all the starvation and Kim Jong-il worship. Now, speaking of nurses and doctors, we got to say the word Vanderbilt, the Harvard of the South. Former nurse Redonda Vaught is sentenced this week, and for what? The crime of falling in a giant Swiss cheese of holes she said yes to a gig at an employer with safety holes of a poorly designed catch system, or let's call it crap implemented safety systems at Vanderbilt Medical. Is it cowardly that suits the through this nurse who came forward on her own free will under the bus? Yes, they did. They violated federal law and they called it a natural death and they paid the family and they gagged them with a nice settlement for the loss of granny for $780,000. Oops. What tragically killed Granny was something that kills 700 patients daily, medical errors, and it disables 11,000 more daily, medical errors. Each caregiver listening right now knows that on a bad day, 
you could become Radonda Vaught, going to jail, lost her license. So almost 500 people will die or be disabled by a medical error by the end of this listen. That's every half hour, a jumbo jet full. Every half hour, dead or disabled. Thank you, medical errors. The number three killer behind heart and cancer. So no one at Vanderbilt was even investigated that we know of. Vandy didn't self-report, and we know that. That violates the federal law. Not a peep from OIG or the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation that we know of. The suits have hit it, and it happens every minute of every day, I think it's safe to say. It's wiser to settle and gag the family, exactly what happened with Vandy and Redonda, that family. Remember, an anonymous tip launched this investigation. We just criminalized the fast food worker because they serve really unhealthy food. The kitchen has rats. The food is salt, fat, and sugar. Let's say LaRedonda's twin sister works at the cash register of that fast food. Should she go to jail for a chain of human errors she made that no system caught? It wasn't entirely her fault. Hands up. Guess how many lawsuits were brought against hospitals for the hospital-acquired infections? They're unwinnable. The answer is zero. No lawyer will take these cases on because the resistant bacteria like C. diff and MRSA killed twice as many globally as the pandemic last year, over 2 million people. Our antibiotic toolkit of care and the model that supports it has been outflanked by invisible bugs that no one is talking about, the real pandemic. Listen to our two shows with Xenex, Morris Miller, if you want to breathe a little easier and not sweat that one. Okay, lady, prove that 1.5 trillion of bacteria on your skin wasn't there the day you checked into St. Mercy, Joseph, Mary, John Paul, George, and Ringo Hospital. And yet, there are plenty of hospitals and surgery centers with excellent infection rates, says LeapFrog. It's about the systems, the SOPs, the checklists. Systems run companies, good people run good systems. The whole point of direct primary care is to eliminate cost and money friction, to eliminate the hospital hurricane of complexity by treating us upstream and visits and stays dropped 20 to 40%. That's a meaningful percentage, as much as 80% in some models we've seen. And everybody wins in this direct contract world. The docs, us, employers, cost and outcomes, all winners. Got to remind us that we all have a bright future in healthcare, some of us. We all live in a future where everybody wins. Today's guest is a premier investigative journalist in healthcare. We all miss Marshall Allen of ProPublica now that he's gone all consumer-centric on us with that amazing new book of his. Not anymore. Meet the Sammy Hagar of investigative healthcare. We got the band back together. Eric Starkman is a veteran journalist and former executive of the New York City PR and crisis communications firm. He started working as a reporter and editor at the Toronto Star, then the Montreal Gazette, and then the Detroit News. And if I remember correctly, in the War of 1812, we lost Fort Detroit, so we'll just call that Canada. So he's full on Canadian press. And you'll hear why this Canadian lens is important in a second. Over two decades, he ran the well-known New York-based agency where he advised some very high-profile clients on media and other matters. And in 2020, Eric returned to journalism roots and covered the implosion of Michigan's Beaumont Health, which investigative reporting garnered award from the Society of Professional Journalists. He publishes the excellent Starkman Approved, which I try to never miss. And he does these A-plus deep dives on corporatization of healthcare and the marginalization of doctors and other health professionals. He's currently living in LA, this former Canadian. So he sees us through this fresh lens and that's what makes his view important. Welcome to the show, Eric Starkman. And do you have any comments? 
Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. And I got to say, listening to your preamble, God bless. You know, I often feel all alone in that, like, do people not see what's happening in U.S. healthcare? And, and you clearly do. And, uh, you know, I wanted to touch on two things. You know, you were talking about corporatization of medicine and, you know, the acquisitions of private practices. And one of my big recent disappointments was Maura Healy in Massachusetts, the attorney general for Massachusetts. And she, you know, I always thought she was one of the good people that would stand up to, you know, corporate healthcare interests, but she approved Optum's acquisition of the biggest private physician network in Massachusetts, which also happens to be a nonprofit. And to me, we have a, a crisis of regulators in this country when it comes to healthcare. I'm not sure if you're familiar or how well you or your listeners are familiar with Beaumont Health, but that is a real tragic story in healthcare. And, you know, it was eventually taken over by uh, Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids. And I'm pretty skeptical about how that's going to turn out. And then, you know, you just yesterday, or the, I think it was yesterday, I'm losing track of time. Uh, there was another major acquisition announced, you know, Atrium was going to take over Advocate Aurora. And President Biden actually issued a plea to his regulators saying, do not approve these big healthcare mergers. And they're still getting approved, which shows you as you refer to it as, you know, the lobbying might of the American Hospital Association, that they, you know, they're just moving full speed ahead. And, you know, healthcare is going to be all controlled by just a couple of companies in a few years. And I don't think people understand what's going to happen and what this means. And, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, healthcare equity. Well, what's really going to happen is the very wealthy people are going to see real doctors. You know, it's going to be concierge medicine. And the rest of us are going to see providers, you know, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, some techs. And it, it, it's, it's really disheartening. And I, I can't support you enough in what you're doing and your insights. So thanks for having me. Well, we're going to start a Slack channel together. I've already got it going and you and I are going to get on it. And we're going to get this community board better organized. But I want to talk about something else today is I've seen something happen and I'm not a data scientist, so I can't prove it, but it seems like the corporate healthcare investigations have sort of cratered. Now we've had a pandemic. There's a lot of drama and breathless news about that, but that's been over for a while. And these investigations don't seem to be bouncing back. What's going on? When you say investigations, you mean government investigations or media investigations? Investigations by journalists like you. We used to have the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, WashPo. We had ProPublica, Kaiser Health News. There were so many interesting investigations. And I know it takes a reporter time, sometimes weeks or months, so it's expensive. And I also know that, you know, we've had a pandemic, but it seems like every investigative reporter who was and doing your job that you're doing currently has taken a little vacay and they're no longer writing about this stuff. It's, it's not front burner journalism and the pandemic coverage was pretty shameful. I mean, I'm not sure what your views are, but 
You know, they were just basically towing the government line. I think it's the greatest heist and the greatest con in the history of, of the world. That's what I think it is. So then we're on the same page. Okay. I was just toying this morning. You know, I don't know if you saw this, and I, I, I welcome your thoughts because, like, to me, this is a really big deal. But there was a report that Dr. Fauci was getting all these uh, royalties, and nobody's really picked up that story. And that strikes me as a very, very big deal. Yeah, let's talk about, well, I, I do want to talk about that, but let's talk about how you pick a story because. It's so interesting to me that the hospitals are getting negative press about this great resignation of nurses, which is, it's, it's been there for all along. It's just the pandemic sort of has accelerated it a bit. But the American Hospital Association and its little sister, the Federation of American Hospitals, started this thing called the Coalition to Protect America's Healthcare. Its chief job is to celebrate our healthcare heroes and have very lovely award-winning videos to drop into social media about how lovely it is to work at a hospital. But... It, nobody believes it, of course. I mean, you can't fight this tidal wave of true information. So, you know, I do believe no matter how much sometimes the lobbies spend to put lipstick on a pig, you can't lipstick some pigs, I believe. And I think Fauci's lipstick fell off a long time ago. I, I would agree with that. So how do you pick a story, Eric? I mean, private equity is a pretty big subject to tackle. That's a book. Yet you write really insightful, tight articles about PE and what they've done to healthcare and how they've hurt people and actually killed people. And you're kind of unafraid. You go right into the mix of it and tackle the big ones. How did you pick those kind of stories? You know, to be quite honest with you, it's just personal outrage. It's just, I'm quite familiar with private equity because my background was a financial reporter. And when I lived in New York, I had quite a lot of interactions with private equity people. So I know their mindset. I know their business model. And I know their ruthlessness. And, you know, what they've done in healthcare is just mind boggling. And, you know, I was just reading something the other day, you know, there's some investigative publication in Tennessee, you know, there's all these fines, they're paying huge fines to settle cases. And it just got to tell you, like, if they got that money to settle fines, how profitable it really is. And, and it's shocking. And, it, you know, the whole ER staffing business, you know, the one thing I haven't figured out is how the hospitals profit from it. You know, I, I assume they get paid and it allows them to get the money that they get from the, from the Blackstone, from Team Health and Envision compensates them for give, handing over the business to them. But it is frightening how these companies operate. And when you go to an emergency room, it's gonna be understaffed and you're not guaranteed you're gonna even see a doctor. You know, There's the book that, I, that had a big influence on me. Um, it's got a terrible name. It's written by two doctors. The name will come back to me, but it's a whole book that was triggered by a young woman who went to an emergency room, wasn't seen by a doctor, was seen by a physician's assistant, was misdiagnosed, and they just followed the case right through. And, you know, this, this stuff goes on all day long. Yeah. Not to change the subject, but I think the fines that the private equity pays is built into their model, the proof of the pudding. We had a guest who has been on the inside 
as an expert witness in a position, a Harvard physician, Harvard trained and Harvard teaching physician who consults against the pharmaceuticals on these suits. And if you add up all of the fines and settlements of big pharma over the last 10 to 15 years, it's 1% of the profits for that same period of time. Meaning not the revenues, 1% of the profits. So instead of making 12 or 13 or 14%, which is the same margins as the big tech earns, they're up in that range. So maybe they earned 11, but that's over a 20 year period. So it's 1 20th of 11, right? So the point is, I think these fines are built in. Now, what they can't overcome is outpatient surgery, which one of those two models you mentioned is completely based on is charging extremely large rates because it's not inpatient because they're out of network. Those kind of out of network charges are over. Those days are over. Those gains are over. And if you built your model on that being how you're getting your revenue, that's a big, big problem. And I think it's the same thing with hospitals. Hospitals, I think their model is on thin ice because if you can't get the labor to fill up the big, beautiful crystal pavilions, you got a long-term problem. I mean, and they do have a long-term problem. I think all these doctors they're acquiring are just going to be picked off one by one by better models. So what obstacles are there when you do find a store? Do you have people blocking you, Eric, in some way, or people that are slow playing your freedom of information requests? How does that work on your side of the, of the ledger? Well... I get very little support and I'm disappointed. I don't get much support from the industry either. You know, people I'd expect independent doctors to support me. I mean, I get some, but not very much. So I'm, I'm kind of just out there on my own. But as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I grew up in Canada with socialized medicine. And when I grew up in Toronto, the system was much better than it is today in Canada. I would never think twice of going to a doctor if I needed care. You know, I never thought of the bill because I never saw one. You know, you went to the doctor and you gave them your, you know, I lived in Ontario. So you gave them what was your OHIP number, your Ontario hospitalization plan number, and you got great care. And it wasn't until I moved to the States where like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. and people like to knock the Canadian health system, but the rate of COVID deaths in Canada was considerably lower than the U.S. And they have much fewer hospital beds. And they were late on vaccinations as well. And whatever problems Canada has, you know, if you're a working class person or a poor person in Ontario, in Canada, you can still get reasonably good care. And, you know, here, what is like 20% of the of Americans can't even afford healthcare, I think it was. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and that just to me is criminal. Yeah. And it's criminal, you know, the turning point, and I hope you don't mind my sharing this, was covering Beaumont Health. You know, I stumbled into healthcare by chance. My, my friend owns uh, Deadline Detroit, an independent publication in Michigan. And I was talking to a friend one night who just mentioned in passing that Henry Ford Hospital was paying more to, to its nurses during COVID, you know, the COVID pay than Beaumont was. And that struck me as pretty strange because like Beaumont is the wealthier hospital and caters to a much wealthier clientele. And I would just had planned on doing that one story. And then they closed the hospital in the midst of a pandemic and made this statement that didn't ring right to me. 
And, you know, working in PR, I know how to interpret PR. And like, I, I heard their statement and I said to myself, this something's not right here. And I just kept digging and digging. And I'm pretty proud of what I wrote about Beaumont. And I thought it was just unique to Beaumont. But I've learned that like, you know, Beaumont did things on a grand scale, but it's pretty pervasive throughout the country. And that's how I became so passionate about covering healthcare. So what is pervasive? What did they do that you've now discovered is all across the country? Well, one of the things that really surprised me was that their orthopedic surgeons, which were like among the, you know, if you believe, and I, I take these ratings with a grain of salt, the U.S. Uh, News and World Report rate their orthopedics, I think it was 11th best in the country. So you're talking about, you know, really world-class surgeons. And these doctors were being pressured to use uh, devices, medical devices like screws and things that they thought were substandard. But Beaumont got a rebate, or I would call it a kickback. <laughs> no, the GPOs get legal kickbacks. The, the group purchasing organizations represents 80 plus percent of what's purchased in hospitals. And the docs don't get a vote. It's the suits that vote on that stuff. Well, get this. So it was the GPO that was sending these notices to the doctors and they didn't even list that they worked for the GPO. They listed themselves as working for Beaumont and they were being pressured saying, you know, you need to use uh, the striker screws because we get a rebate on those. If we hit a certain, we get a volume discount mm. and it got so bad. And there was so much resistance that the head of orthopedics at uh and Beaumont said, anybody who wants to use anything but striker needs my personal approval. And uh, I, I don't want you uh, putting it in writing. I want, I, want it, I want you to ask for it. You know, I prefer to be contacted by the phone. And the head of orthopedics, you know, earned over 900000 in consulting fees from striker. The optics on this looks very bad to me. Well, it's a, it's a perfect example of what a once great hospital that has lost their way from their mission. Eric, how are you paid? How are you surviving with all this great work you're doing? Well, I'm lucky. I, uh, I'm living off my savings right now. Hmm. I worked in PR. Uh, I was blessed to have run a successful business. And, you know, I'm still living on my savings. You know, my dream is to start a healthcare, a really hardcore healthcare investigative website. Well, you're the right guy to do it for sure. Do you yeah, believe that a lot of journalists are conflicted by uh, the bigs that are out there? Do you think that the reason we're not reading about all this is because there's some conflict of interest for either individual or corporate level? I think at the corporate level, hospitals are major advertisers in local newspapers. And, yeah. and they also have a lot of power in their local communities. Yes. You know, one of, one of the things that I found really disturbing, are you familiar with Dr. Mary Bowden? Of course. Yeah, she's going to be on the show. Oh, really? Well, I'm, I, I've written about Dr. Bowden, and the courage of that woman is, is, like, I really admire her courage, and she's taken quite a beating in the local Houston media. And in fact, she learned that she was getting suspended from Houston Methodist from a reporter. She didn't even learn it from the hospital. 
Look, I, I lived in Houston for 10 years. That is considered the finest hospital, if not one of the finest in the country. It's the alpha. And for them to play this kind of game, but she's going to come on the show and she said, no holds barred, no questions uh, prohibited. I know she's got a lawsuit against them. So she says, maybe can't talk about that, but Mary Hallie Bowden is going to be on this show for sure. So I, I'm aware, and I did note that in my article about Dr. Bowden, you know, Houston Methodist, I was shocked. You know, their leapfrog ratings are A, right across the board, you know? Well, they're great respect. I mean, I've, I've met the CEO. He's really, it's a doctor-led hospital, which kind of leads them a lot more credibility. I want to talk to you for a second and switch subject as kind of a final question. We got a lot more to talk about it in another show, but if you're advising Vanderbilt right now, Vanderbilt Medical. Now let's switch hats and you're back in your crisis consulting days. Okay. You're advising Vanderbilt, which has thrown this nurse under the bus, Redonda Vaught. That's probably the highest profile medical story in the last couple of months, certainly, that a nurse got fired, that a nurse got delicensed, that a nurse is going to prison for criminal charges for something that we're not going to say it wasn't her fault. She clearly was at fault, but there's about six or seven catchments that didn't click into place because they didn't have the systems to catch. So Vanderbilt basically is a mousetrap for liability. In other words, if you work there, is there anything you can do to advise Vanderbilt to clean up the act? Well, I think in Vanderbilt's case, they've got a formidable road ahead of them. But I do want to talk, say one thing about that case. There is a potential hero in that story that I haven't quite figured out who it is, but that case was a whistleblower case, as you noted, and it was investigated by the regulator in Tennessee. But somewhere along the way, the regulator noted the culpability of Vanderbilt. They didn't just refer the case to the district attorney. Somewhere along the line, it's out there that Vanderbilt had some culpability. And it's not clear to me who it was. I have a suspicion who it was, but I don't know that for certain. But there's another side story to that is that the district attorney, I haven't checked for a couple of weeks, but he's up for election, re-election, and the people are running against them are making an issue of his case and saying that they would have never prosecuted it. So hopefully he gets defeated and uh, that'll send a warning to other district attorneys that try a stunt like that. I mean, that, that was shameful to do what they did to that nurse. It's just unbelievable. And I'm hoping that he does get defeated, that the public, you know, I, I wouldn't give the local media an A for their coverage of it, but there were some stories that showed some compassion for the woman. I did see that. And the family, they lost their grandmother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were some local stories. Well, so let's let's have a private conversation later about a lot of subjects. But for now, if, if people want to reach out and find you, Eric, other than start reading your excellent Starkman Approved, how would they contact you and connect with you? Yes, I'm at eric at starkmanapproved.com, E-R-I-C at S-T-A-R-K-M-A-N approved.com. Great. And if you could fly a banner over America, what would that banner say? Wake up, America. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good one. I've now heard uh, 170 banners, and I think that one is the best one so far we've heard. So thank you again, Eric, for being on the show. I will reach you offline, and we'll figure something out, uh, what we can do together next, okay? 
All right. I'd love to. You're doing great stuff. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.